Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. That's right, and live from the NASDAQ market site, this is Fast Money. I am Brian Sullivan, in for Melissa Lee. Your traders on this very important day are Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, Mark Tepper, and Carter Worth will join us momentarily. The headline, what a difference a few words make. Stocks rising, surging, as President Trump says that China wants to make a trade deal. So how are traders trading all the twists and turns? Over trade. We're going to take you to trade school straight ahead. Also... Lift, getting a lift today following a big analyst upgrade. So is it time to put the pedal to the metal on this beaten down stock? We are digging in on all of this. And more importantly, what you should be doing or maybe not doing around it. All right, we begin, though, with big breaking headline right now. Shares of Johnson & Johnson, they are higher in the after hours after an Oklahoma judge ordered the company to pay $572 million for its role in the national opioid crisis. However, that number, $572 million, far less than some expected. Meg Terrell is live outside of the courthouse in Norman, Oklahoma, where that decision was handed down less than one hour ago. Meg. Hey, Brian. Well, uh, it may not sound like a positive headline, but J&J stock is certainly not reacting that way. The judge here in Oklahoma did find Johnson & Johnson accountable for creating the state's opioid epidemic, saying it created what they call a public nuisance. But they were ordered to pay $572 million. Now, the state had asked for $17 billion over 30 years. Now, that $572 million accounts for one year of what they call an abatement plan to try to fix the opioid crisis here in the state. They're saying here in the 42-page decision that the state didn't provide sufficient evidence of the amount of time and cost necessary beyond year one to abate the opioid crisis. And that's why you're seeing 572 versus the 17 billion that the state asked for. Wall Street was looking for one to two billion dollars. So that's why you're seeing these stocks move so much. Not just Johnson & Johnson, but other drug makers involved in other cases that are gonna start to play out this fall, like Teva, Malincrot, Endo. Uh, drug distributors uh, moving a little bit as well. Amerisource Bergen, McKesson, Cardinal Health. So there's a lot on the line here. We just heard from the state attorney general, uh, Mike Hunter, here uh, calling out Johnson & Johnson CEO directly. Take a listen to what he said. Johnson & Johnson is a member of the Business Roundtable. And I'm asking the CEO of Johnson & Johnson, Alex Gorski, to put his money where his mouth is and get out his checkbook. Now, we are hearing back from Johnson & Johnson, too, which says it will appeal, saying that Johnson did not cause the opioid crisis in Oklahoma, and neither the facts nor the law support this outcome. Uh, Saying in a more full statement just coming out now that they are asking for the payment of $572 million to be stayed through their appeal, that process they think is going to take uh, into the year 2021. Now, they said that this outcome shouldn't have any impact on the thousands of other cases that are pending around the country. Uh, there are more than 2,000 consolidated in federal court in Ohio that are set to start this fall. Uh, and they say that all options are on the table for that, including a potential settlement. And that would mark a difference uh, in the way they handled this case, uh, where they said in their opening statement, when you're right, you're fight. They fought this one, but there's a lot more on the table, Brian, coming up. All right, Meg Terrell, outside the courthouse in Norman, Oklahoma. Meg, thank you very much. Guys, let's trade this. Tim Seymour, your reaction. Brian, welcome. Uh, look, I, I think for J&J, you have two 
litigation overhangs. Obviously, Talc has won. This is the other one. This is a victory. Uh, I'm sorry for, for a company unlike Mallinckrodt, unlike Endo. Uh, this is a company that has plenty of resources to go after that. More importantly, if you get to the J&J story, again, it's a diversified story. There's, there's medical devices. There's consumer products in addition to Forma. This is a company that's trading at a massive discount to its peers on a sum-of-the-parts basis. And yet, while that never really is totally a linear exercise, this is an interesting moment for the company. Yeah, I think what Tim said is really important here. This is against J&J. The other cases, there's some coming up in Ohio next month. That is against multiple different defendants, and these defendants don't have the same type of resources or diversification that J&J has. So as a trader, I would not take this move in J&J to mean anything for these other companies. The only thing it probably means is Wall Street is expecting like around a billion dollars. Yeah. This is five seventy-two. So maybe if there is a, a judgment, it's less. Than yeah, we but expected. it was it was a seventeen billion dollar ask. Right, I mean, exactly. let's, let's, that's a big discount. This is ninety-six yeah. percent less than sort of the peak of what it could be. But let's be clear. I mean, nobody around this table is an attorney. We've got right. other. Th- Do you worry, Mark? That yes, this may have gone favorably for J and J and its shareholders, but. You think about big tobacco, $268 billion national settlement that took decades to get to. Yeah. Is there too much risk? to own J&J? I don't think so at all. I mean, this thing's dirt cheap. I mean, it's trading at trading like 14 times uh, forward earnings right now. Huge valuation discount to where it normally trades. Uh, as Tim mentioned, it's got a great diversified revenue base from medical devices to pharma to consumer. Uh, I love the stock. I think this was a great win for them so far. I mean, they're sued for $17 billion. They get ordered to pay half a billion. Not a bad deal for them right now. Yeah, but this is a stock, let's be clear, Mark, that Forget about talc, forget about opioids. Hasn't moved yeah, correct. in two and a it's half traded, years. The stock horribly. is at the same price as May of 2017. Correct. And, well, I, I say this, though, Brian. It, you know, certainly it went from December 2015. It went from about an $85 stock up to $145 stock before it then ran into the talc issues. So um, to me, in a market where you have uncertainty around growth, in a market where you have certainly people reaching for more defensive plays, this to me is a little bit more of an avenue into Johnson & Johnson. I, I hear you, uh, except for that, you know, relative to its peers, I still like the valuation. And this is where the market is rewarding companies right now in that you know, kind of overall risk description growth. The problem is, if you look at how it traded, though, $130 is basically the breakdown level from the other day, right? So you're bouncing right up against what is now resistance. It was support in a stock that's gone sideways. Now, it's gone sideways in a big range, but I just think there's better places to be. Plus, you have the overhang of multiple different suits. So, yeah, was this good today? If you're in it and you got it right, sell it and pat yourself on the back. Yeah, I mean, I think this could be a catalyst to propel the stock a little bit higher. Like I said, Great, great valuation at these levels. Love the stock. Nice defensive play. Defensive plays have been working, right? I mean, healthcare not so much, yeah. but defensive plays overall have been working. I think defensive plays continue to work until we get a trade deal at some point, which who knows if that's going to happen. But let's note, though, that half the after-hours pop has already deflated mm-hmm. out of the stock. It was up 4% 20 minutes ago. J&J now up less than 2%. All right, let's turn now to the other big story today, the market. President Trump giving the markets a shot in the arm after he said the U.S. and China are, quote, getting back to the table on trade talks. President making those comments at the G7 summit as it wraps up in France. Eamon Javers is there live for us, and he's been there live throughout what has been a headline twist and turn over the last 48 hours, Eamon. 
been a fascinating time here in France, Brian. What a difference a year makes and what a difference a weekend makes. I say a year because you remember last year at the G7, the president left taking off on Air Force One, angrily tweeting about the hosts, uh, tweeting some insults, a, a real wipeout of a G7 last time around. This time, an entirely different tone. The president tweeting on his way out the door, Thank you, France. A very upbeat and happy tweet that really jives with the unity message that G7 was trying to send here this time around. So uh, a success there on the diplomatic front. And then what a difference a weekend makes in terms of the Donald Trump that we saw on Friday. Again, angry tweeting, uh, imposing tariffs on China, uh, the stock market wipeout that we saw or the stock market uh, sell-off that we saw on Friday. Today, though, this is a president who's making positive noises about China, saying that he wants to get to a deal, uh, making nice with the European leaders, and then today offering us some insight, Brian, into his thinking process. He was asked if this roller coaster that we've seen in financial markets as a result of some of the president's statements, uh, if he bears any blame for that. And he said, ultimately, no, this is just who he is. Here's how he said it. The way I negotiate, it's done very well for me over the years, and it's doing even better for the country. They don't have the wisdom to know that you can't continue to go on where a country is taking 500 billion, not million, 500 billion with a B, out every single year. So the president there saying that calling Xi Jinping an enemy on Friday, calling him a great leader today, that's just the way he negotiates. You don't get the sense, Brian, that this is a president who's going to change his personal style anytime soon and sort of letting the audience there know and the world know this is who he is and this is how he's going to continue to operate. And we're going to all be following the twists and turns as this goes through the next couple of months, Brian. Yeah, certainly. Eamon, it's been two and a half years. I'm not sure who's still waiting for the style to change. Eamon Jivers, great coverage for the G7. That's we'll right. see you soon, Eamon. Thank you very much. Well, if you don't think that words matter, you're not paying attention to the stock market. We want to take a look at the market action over the past two (laughs) trading sessions. Really, the 48 hours the market was open. Okay, look at this. Friday, this is Friday, 11 a.m., stocks plunged. That is when Trump blasted China in a series of tweets. Sort of that nasty language that Eamon was talking about. Now, we sold off here into the close. Then we went into the weekend, (laughs) thankfully. Now, we had more comments from the president that sent futures even lower. Now, around four o'clock this morning, it looked like another big down day for stocks. We came in for worldwide exchange, and guess what? It didn't look too good. But then a whipsaw turnaround as the president said China was indeed ready to come back to the table. That's this here. Here's 600 points down. Yeah, we saw a 200, 300 point pop at the open, and the market kind of <laughs> stayed flat the rest of the day. The question is how do you live through all of this? How are traders trading? All the twists and turns from Trump on trade. Time now to go to trade school class in session with Mr. Tim Seymour. Well, you know, first of all, I wanted to point something out because this line right here is 2930 is really the line we've been bucking up to for two weeks on every tweet. Good tweet, bad tweet. So as you said, we got into here. And then the E-minis, if you look, if you're trading Sunday afternoon, you know, my family wondered why I left the beach and went to go look at the screens. Ultimately, we got down. We were down another 35 handles in the afternoon. And in fact, so from the close, we were down a total of 60 handles, which was a total of 120 
20 S&P points. Uh, we were down last night. Now, you know, ultimately, you say, what are you supposed to do during all of this? And I think the most important things to continue to watch, remember, you need to watch the dollar, you need to watch dollar-yen. Yep. The dollar index, the DXY, is a two-year chart that anyone should want to own. And unfortunately, that doesn't bode well for the markets. The other thing that, what, guess what else went down right here? U.S. Treasury. So the 10-year bond yield, in other words, a rally in bonds, a risk-off moment, was a place where we got down to 143 overnight mm. before settling back up today. That's not great news. Look, based upon what I know, talking to a bunch of accounts on the street, this is pension funds who have to chase bond yields lower. That's the dynamic here. Relative value still favors those yields. But are they doing lower? So, okay, so your anecdote about Sunday leaving the family at the beach, okay? Yeah. Th- that's the kind of... It was market- getting cloudy, too. No, no but be let's, be, I mean, was, let's be fair. And though. I didn't have enough no, sunscreen that's, on. No, listen, that's the kind of market we're in. Everybody I know, our team on Worldwide yeah. Exchange, they, I mean, they get in at 2 o'clock in the morning, 9 p.m. at night the night before, <laughs> everyone's emailing each other because that's when we see Asian. That's when we see futures start to trade. Everyone is so now hinged on this moment-to-moment. We had futures move... I'll call it a 500-point move yeah. at 4.30 this morning. Who's doing that? Who's doing well, that? Well, I, I tell you what. The, the, I, I hate to futures, chalk it up to the machines, futures but, never but high frequency. High until fre- 7 a.m. roughly when all the futures traders in New York got in. Now they're moving at 4.30 in the morning. But those are thin markets, Brian. And, th- and by the way, this is probably one of the slowest trading weeks of the year. So a lot of people stayed on the beach. The, 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 the bottom line is nothing has really changed in the last three weeks. We've been in a trading range on the S&P. The most important things, I think, are the yeah. Fed, which has largely been marginalized. But look, if you look at the market that has underperformed during these tweet storms, it's been autos, it's been, it's been semis, it's been things that really haven't necessarily snapped back. But there's parts of the market that every time you get one of these tweets, it's reinforced the investment case. And overall, you, okay. that's that's where we are. Let's, uh, can we, guys, can we bring a two year of the S&P, a two year chart, of, not the two year, two year chart of the S&P 500 up? Because how do you trade this market? Carter Worth, welcome, by the way. And you've been all over this. And we look at this market and many people say, well, we haven't really gone anywhere mm-hmm. for a year and a half. But how is our viewer, the fast money, the CNBC audience supposed to deal with a market that moves 300, 500, 800 points on a tweet. Well, that's right. And, and that uh, is a dysfunctionality that is uh, treacherous, really, in many ways, whether you're long or short. But Tim really, really captured when he said nothing has happened. The interesting thing is we are unchanged. But when you have extreme volatility like this, it represents indecision, right? There are a lot of people who believe that the sell-off of August is a great opportunity by the dip. And there are a lot of people, of course, who think this is the beginning of a more serious unwind. So after the initial sell-off, the real plunge of August first through fifth, we've had six three-session moves of 4% or more. Basically, we've been gyrating around. And more often than not, you get resolved in the direction of the primary move. So the primary move is down. We've been backing and filling. And then you get a second down. This is exactly what happened, actually, in October, uh, just before we got into real trouble uh, last autumn. Yeah, in fact, you know, Carter, probably you should be at the Telestrator. So, you know, this is a two-year chart of the S&P 500. I highlight... (laughs) Him instead of me, not him instead of you. Take it easy, son. All right, here we go. So January of 2018, and you can see Tim made the circles, but very nice job. You colored inside the line. So here we have a market that, you know, what are the key numbers, Carter? Is there a specific number on the S&P? We're at 2878 that we need to really closely watch right now. 
I mean, ultimately, the minor lows of the past uh, four, five weeks, I mean, four, five, uh, let's say, well, weeks, really, this, that we keep bumping up, I think we're going to break that sort of 28-20, and ultimately we test the June lows. I don't see a lot of upside, and it's not so much about the market, it's about the constituents. We have an increasingly uh, narrow market, and that is a problem. All right, Carter, thank you very much. Good stuff. Great stuff. Good, Good to be st- here. Good stuff. Love the tell trade. Thank you. Good stuff. Well, if you're trying to time when we're going to get a trade deal, one top strategist says it may be coming sooner than you think. We're going to hear from Oppenheimer's chief market strategist, John Stolfus, on set next. And later, ensuring your portfolio, Carter Worth, he's got one stock that he says could be the perfect protection play, and the company is actually already in the business of protecting your assets. He's going to break down that name for you. We are live, as always, for the NASDAQ and Times Square. Much more Fast Money right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. If you're trying to time the trade talks, your next guest says that a deal might be coming sooner than later. Let's now bring in John Stolfus. He is chief investment strategist at Oppenheimer. Happy to have him on set. You remain optimistic about the markets. You remain optimistic about trade. How? Still bullish after all these years. It just looks, it looks to us that what we've got here is we're building towards a crescendo. All the mayhem in the, in the tweets and everything else, the retaliatory remarks from China, yet the underlying case is both leaderships are getting a lot of heat back home to get this done so that they can get on to other things. Whether they ultimately recognize it or not, or how soon, it's hard to tell. I, I don't know if this is a controversial question or not, but <clears throat> if we are headed into recession, and we don't know, unless everyone's talking about it, it may not ha- we don't want to talk ourselves into it, but if we are heading into recession, would a trade deal, John, even matter to the equity market? Oh, I, I think the, a, a trade deal will see an about face of all the predictions of, of recession. You'll see a ramp up of global growth expectations in terms of GDP, global growth in terms of earnings and revenues for corporations. We could have uh, quite a rally from that. Uh, and then we'll likely have, after a quick rally, you'll have one of those uh, I'm from Missouri show me moments where let's see how it works out, okay? It's not like heaven on earth or anything. But the markets would likely be very positive on a deal. So let's take it the other way. Mm-hmm. Clearly, Trump's Achilles heel is the election coming up, right? Oh. And so the Chinese know that. What are the odds that they just drag it out until the, even all these talks oh. go on and they say, we're going to get a better deal if there's a recession in the U.S. and Trump is not reelected? I, I, I think the, the likelihood then is, is whoever they meet on the other side of the election 
will have to carry forth on this. Because the irony of it is, is as much as Trump's uh, presidency is contested, it's, it's, un, it's unconventional. You know, it has a lot of detractors as well as supporters. But the big story is here. This is one thing both sides of the aisle can agree on. And Trump was yep. the only worldwide leader who was willing to take on the Chinese. It's an extraordinary thing. Now, whether he did it for altruistic purposes or because it looked like a, a, a good pitch, uh, that's up to him. Mark. Hey, John, so assuming we get a trade deal done, how long do you think it takes for the economy to snap back, given that I think a lot of damage has already been done? Well, uh, the, the damage, uh, ironically, has not been significant. If we really look at, at, uh, at the first year of the trade war, it was 2018. The U.S. economy produced GDP growth of 2.9 percent. That was the best since 2016, and before that was the best since 2006. So that's extraordinary. Not, not bad considering. Now, the damage is beginning to happen as the trade deal has expanded. More goods are, 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 are implicated by this thing or impacted. Uh, but and a lot of it's in planning. But today with technology, in terms of all kinds of uh, methodologies for planning and execution, logistics, uh, probably fairly quickly, but the markets as a discount mechanism would pick up on the idea of a healing to the global economy and, and, and move ahead of that. I don't think it's just China, John. I mean, I think you've got, you know, these worries about Europe, Germany slowing down. All the manufacturing and industrial production numbers have been pretty lousy. We've got this Brexit threat coming at the end of October as well. Argentina, which doesn't necessarily matter from a macro perspective, but it's another negative, another poke in the eye. Mm-hmm. The market, if you will, make the case for U.S. equity, or maybe I just did that everything else looks so bad. Do you think that we really, just look good? Is it an earnings growth story? Because basically, if you're going to get a rally, you know it comes from cyclicals, right? I mean, that's the nature of oversold bounces, which means you're arguing for sort of low quality, low margin earnings uncertainty. Uh, the things that uh, are in many ways desperate. Not to say that you're making a desperate call, but that's what bounces most off of a low every time, right? So. Do you see that really happening? I mean, Glencore and U.S. Steel and big, heavy manufacturers and banks that are, uh, you know, struggling. That's the only way it happens. Well, materials, when you get to materials, they tend to be one of the one of the areas that really picks up on on some kind of a of a of a of a turn. I'll never forget uh, the first quarter of 2003. Everybody was still looking at their screens, looking at all the red and technology from the tech bubble. And all of a sudden, in the first quarter, I think it was March 31st, word came out, China's ordering a lot of materials. They're buying stuff. They're building stuff. Wow, the market took off. And it was... It was but, John, I will, I, I will make the case, yeah. though, yep. that... And I don't know the exact number. It's no. 2003, but, but I would imagine the S&P 500 forward <clears throat> price to earnings ratio was probably pretty low. It, it, I mean, it got yeah. down in the single Definitely. digits, I yep. believe, at one point at the peak of the yep. NASDAQ mm-hmm. sort of decimation. Yep. Yep. Right. We're at 21 times trailing earnings right now. Well, is it the valuation well, different? You know, my read on my terminal showed me that S&P 500 trailing earnings are 18 point, 18 point okay, a little five. lower. I mean, it's a little bit lower. They were looking at different numbers. They were pushing 20. So valuations are, are better than that from what I can tell. And then the other thing is there's a shortage of good equities. There's a huge need demographically for people to move out of the over, uh, overbid that they've made on bonds and move into stocks. There are people who have objectives that are three, four, five, seven, ten years out that can afford to take 
take a little bit of risk here with a portion of their money so that they, can, they won't have to worry about outliving their, their, their funds. And so the, the recovery word happen. it's got to be either from multiple expansion or yep. earnings growth, right? Yep. One of the, you're expecting a little bit of both? Or? Not or. It, it's an and or. Right, and or. Is right. what That's we what expect. And, and so far, it, it, uh, you know, when, when I look at it, Carter, we've got earnings growth of about 1.5% in the second quarter earnings, uh, revenue growth about 3.4%. Bears would say... Uh, you know, that, well, the earnings growth is terrible, but the reality is revenue growth gives you a better idea of forward-looking, generally speaking. The other side of it is, is when you look at the whole world, when you think of Germany and the other countries that are suffering, a lot of it is because they depend on trade with China. And China's not buying a lot of stuff because they've got domestic problems at home in terms of their economy slowing that they're dealing with, and they've got the trade war. So, oh, by the way, Hong Kong protests. At, 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 yep, at, at both of well. us were in Hong Kong yeah. around this. Recently. Recently. Yeah. yeah. John Stolfes of Oppenheimer. Target there, 2960. Optimistic on trade, optimistic on the market. Sean, we appreciate you having us on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you know, the, the one thing, Mark, we talk about with bonds, and I understand his point, but bonds have been, as an asset class, we always look at the interest rate. Bonds have done what? They're up twenty percent this year. The TLT has rocketed. It's yeah, been a, it's been a great capital appreciation story. It has, it, which is interesting. But because it can't continue. It, it can't. I mean, well, maybe it can. Who knows, right? I mean, there's all this negative yielding debt out there. Where, where else? Ten years yes. go to zero. I mean, it can go. Well, it can go much lower because there's all this negative yielding sovereign debt out there. So where else does the money go? I mean, it's flowing into U.S. Treasuries right now, and that can continue to happen. And you can continue to see more appreciation there. I got to tell you, I'm not overly excited about jumping into bonds that are paying 1.6 percent. But if the appreciation is there, it could be attractive. Simply, you're going to see uh, rebalancing. People are now way overweight bonds. You're going to see that. doesn't mean it's a, it's a quick gift for equities, but it, it, there's no question that people are over their skis. And I do think back to the market multiple, we, can be, we should be trading higher, not because things are better, but because that's what goes on in this environment. All right, we are just getting started here on a very wide-ranging Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Betting on a breakout. The options market says this chip stock is ready to rip higher. We'll bring you that name. But first, riding high. Lift, getting a lift on a big upgrade. We're putting the pedal to the metal for our call of the day when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. All right, and welcome back to Fast Money. We've got some more breaking news on that Johnson & Johnson opioid verdict. Let us head back out now to Meg Terrell, who has an attorney for J&J outside of the courthouse in Oklahoma. Meg, take it away. I keep looking at you. 
Hi, Brian. I'm here with Sabrina Strong, an attorney for J&J. Uh, we're talking just after this wrapped up. Uh, the court here found uh, for the state of Oklahoma, saying that Johnson & Johnson caused the opioid crisis here in this state and ordered the company to pay, pay $572 million. Now, J&J says it plans to appeal. What does that process look like? Um, yes, well, uh, we believe that the decision is flawed and we fundamentally disagree with it. And so what that process looks like is we plan to put together appellate papers that point out the problems with that decision. Um, the facts of this case demonstrate that Johnson & Johnson did not cause the opioid abuse crisis here in Oklahoma or anywhere else in the country. Um, the, the, the facts at trial showed that Johnson & Johnson's products were rarely diverted rarely abused and amounted to less than 1% of all prescription opioids that were prescribed to patients here in Oklahoma. And that's true throughout the country as well. So you're disputing the judge's decision, um, which did find for the state. If you look at Johnson & Johnson's stock right now, it's up. Wall Street sees this as a victory for J&J. Uh, how do you kind of look at that reaction? Again, uh, our position on this is that the decision is flawed. There's no basis for liability against the company, whether you're looking at the law or looking at the facts. Uh, this is a radical departure from the law in Oklahoma. For over a hundred years, public nuisance law in Oklahoma has been limited to property disputes. That's not what this case is about. Of course, this is not the only case going on for Johnson & Johnson and for many other companies. Uh, about 2,000 cases have been consolidated in federal court in Ohio, and those should go to trial potentially in October. Um, you said in a statement, or Johnson & Johnson did, that those cases are different, but J&J isn't opposed to a settlement there. How are you looking at those cases? Uh, those cases are different in that right now we are here in Oklahoma, under Oklahoma law. The cases that are consolidated uh, in the MDL proceeding in Cleveland, Ohio, are under different law. They have different parties, different theories, and so we do believe that those are very different. In terms of settlement discussions, the company is always open to engaging in settlement discussions as appropriate. So we just heard from Attorney General Mike Hunter, who spoke directly to Johnson & Johnson CEO Alex Korsky, saying he's got to open his wallet and help pay for the crisis here uh, in the state. Now, I understand the company's going to seek to stay the payment uh, of this $572 million through the appeal process. Do pharmaceutical companies have any sort of responsibility or ethical duty to help uh, abate this crisis? Listen, the public... Uh, the opioid abuse crisis is a massive public health crisis that needs to be addressed. But you can't sue your way out of the opioid abuse crisis. Litigation is not the answer. And uh, at this point, what's important here, the question in this case is, did J&J cause the opioid abuse crisis? And the answer to that is plainly no. All right, Sabrina Strong, attorney for Johnson & Johnson, we really appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. All right, Brian, back over to you. Meg, thank you very much. Tim. So we talked about Johnson & Johnson. I think the most important thing is to talk about the opioid crisis and say that this is something that's not going away. This is something that's a very big political issue, both sides of the aisle. This is something where they do want to see a few you know, stakes, heads on stakes. And I do think that there are going to be plenty of settlements that go on here. Remember, this was a settlement that was significantly less than expected. And for Johnson & Johnson, it at least begins a path for them to get past all of this. Yeah, we still have Ohio, though, and we still have the talc that you mentioned earlier as well. So the headline risk not over yet for J&J. All right, up next, let's switch gears. It is your call of the day. Shares of Lyft taking off following an analyst upgrade, but can you really trust your money to a money-losing ride-sharing company? And later, how a colonel 
help Beyond Meat investors feel a little more full today. We'll explain <laughs> when Fast Money returns. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Your call of the day, a much-needed upgrade in Lyft. Guggenheim, upping it to buy from neutral. They've got a $60 price target. Guggenheim says, we now expect Lyft to be EBITDA positive in 2021. Lyft share is still down roughly 30% since the March IPO, and that $60 price target is still 15% below Lyft's IPO. Does anybody around the table own Lyft? Will anybody around the table buy Lyft on this upgrade? Crickets. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't, don't own it, but actually, don't all risk jump reward. In but listen, risk reward wise, this actually isn't a bad call because you know that $47 is the load since the IPO. So you can shoot against that, right? And so if you're talking about a $60 upside, I'm looking at $10 on the upside and maybe 3 or $4 on the downside. That's not a bad risk reward if you buy into this call. I mean, the really sort of optically bizarre thing is that this is a call for $60, right? Now, that's a year IPO ahead. Is 72 bucks. Oh, 72 bucks is the target? No, that was the IPO. Right, okay, but the right. call is for the stock to go to $60, right? Um, a 17% gain, a 12 month price target. It was $60 eight sessions ago. Meaning, you know, it's just a right. speculative Back hey, to maybe where it, it was. bounces. But so what? Well, there's, by the way, there's some optically bizarre stuff on this desk, but I won't point <laughs> it out. I, I do think if you look at the company, um, the, the, the main thing that you hear them saying is the rationalization in the competitive landscape that these guys won't be all beating each other up. That's, the, that's what I've heard out of the sector for the last six months. I don't know why that is the case right now, frankly. For companies that are struggling for free cash flow, uh, I do think that they're going to continue to be looking for how to take market share. Lyft has been doing that, by the way. I mean, if, if there is a company that seems to have been pressing their, their put to their foot to the pedal. Um, maybe it was Guy Adami who at one point was, was a Lyft driver. Uber. I think he was. I, I, no, he was in Lyft. I'd much rather be an Uber here. I mean, they're growing the top line faster than Lyft Is that right if now. you had to pick, or do you like Uber by itself versus everything else? Uh, Uber's on our watch list right now. So we're a GARP company, so we're looking growth at a reasonable price. So it is on our watch list right now. They're growing the top line 30 to 35 percent. Uh, the enterprise value to revenue valuations, a 25% discount okay. to Lyft, so I like it. Mark, Uber lost $5 billion in 90 days. Yeah, it's not good. Right? No, that's not, in fact, it's, it's <laughs> well, possibly, don't it. I don't know, it's, it's right? not a reasonable it's price. Possibly yeah. Uber's quarter, I don't, think, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's Sullivan hyperbole to say <laughs> it's the worst quarter in 20 years I've ever seen for, for a company that is viable. Correct. I mean, I've seen worse quarters for companies that, are no longer are no longer company right i mean sometimes what about that quarter made you think uber is anything more than just a subsidized by private equity money losing taxi organization the valuation so i mean with with it dropping the price the stock price obviously the valuation becomes more compelling at a 25 percent discount to lift with a more diversified revenue base growing the top line faster i think they eventually fix their problems i'm not jumping in today but it is on the watch list i mean the bottom line is both of them need to raise prices. Right, exactly. Yeah, right. I'd much rather be the user of the product, get the subsidy from venture capital, from private equity, than buy the stock. I'd use, I'd, you know, use my savings to buy some other stock. Look, very simply, transportation as a service is still early stages. I think there'll be other companies to choose from. I don't think you have to jump in and get one of these guys. Obviously, Uber is taking the more expanded approach to their business model. You want the core play, you buy Lyft and pray. You get the kit and pray. Yeah. I, I, did I say That's that? That's your investment I strategy. That? Yeah. I said that. You get the cannabis delivery service, an hour later, the KFC well, that's a, delivery That's a totally different issue. We could do a whole show on that. Okay. We should do. 
Coming up, if there is a re- if there is a recession coming, still an if. Don't tell restaurants. Those stocks have been on fuego this year and made investors a lot of money. But there's a threat on the horizon that could take a big bite out of the rally, what it is and how to play it. Speaking of food, another big fast food joint teaming up with Beyond Meat. But is the deal as finger looking good as it seems on the surface? That looks good. We'll discuss. We are live at the NASDAQ in Times Square. Much more fast money still ahead. We had an acceleration in China. And and two months ago, Jim, I was in Beijing to celebrate the 20th anniversary since Starbucks entered China. We now have 50,000 Starbucks partners in China who proudly wear the green apron. And it was a a real privilege for me to be with them and share that experience. So we have built Starbucks in China for China, and they execute on what we call China speed. And they're doing a great job. That was Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson talking about, of course, China with Jim Cramer. There's a lot more to the interview. Catch the full one on Mad Money coming up in about 15 minutes. That's one you cannot miss, especially with everything going on around China. Now, Starbucks is just one of several restaurants with big exposure to China. So how are Chinese trade tensions impacting the food space? Kate Rogers, thankfully is here, and she has more on this story. Kate. Hi, Brian. That's right. Well, there are three restaurant names that are really on the minds of analysts as trade tensions ramp up with China. Starbucks, as you mentioned, McDonald's, and Yum China. Now, analysts point out that Starbucks actually owns its stores in China, whereas McDonald's and Yum China franchise and license in the country. So if consumer sentiment shifts there, Starbucks would likely feel it most. But there aren't any signs that that's happening just yet as this trade war continues on. In fact, Starbucks just put up a 6% comp number in China this past quarter. The company's also aggressively expanding there, which it's called its second home market. There are currently about 3,900 stores in China, including new smaller format stores meant to cater to customers who are on the go and take on Luckin, its new competitor there. McDonald's had a 7.9% comp number in its developmental licensed market, which does include China, where it should have some 4,500 locations by the end of 2022. CEO Steve Easterbrook noted that the Chinese population is gravitating toward Western QSR due to its affordability. And finally, young China put up a 4% same-store sales number this past quarter, led by 5% growth at KFC. Now, in terms of stock performance, these names are also all standouts this year. Starbucks is up nearly 50% year-to-date. McDonald's up about 20%. Uh, year-to-date in Yum China up nearly 26%. And I have one more name for you guys to kick around. All right. Oh. Restaurant Brands International, they are slowly moving into China with Tim Hortons, the Canadian coffee chain. Popeye's 1,500 locations there in the next decade. Wow. A little coffee fight coming in China, you think, Kate? Well, they're moving in a smaller way. Obviously, Luckin's really expanding very aggressively. Starbucks, I said it, calls China its second home market. It's one of the two places, out, you know, yep. U.S. and China, yep. those are the two places they're really focusing on. Tim's is kind of dipping its toes in, but Popeye's, I mean, 1,500 locations in the next decade. If you're not bullish on China, you don't do that. It has been an incredible run, too, for these stocks. I mean, you've got Shake Shack more than doubled this year, Chipotle, Starbucks, Denny's, Wendy's, Chewy's Holdings, Red Robin. They're all soaring this year. We've spent a lot of time talking about the consumer and the demographic that's that's shopping in these places. And we have a case here where I think if if you look at Starbucks, though, what's extraordinary about their comps is that their third quarter comp sales were up 7 percent in the U.S. The U.S. is still a place where um, they're getting the lion's share of their growth. And they're adding innovation. They're adding digital. They're adding in loyalty. So despite 
right? Uh, look, a valuation that makes no sense relative to where you priced this thing five years ago, as is with McDonald's, as is with, with, with Yum, um, I stay in this stock. Yeah, I mean, these stocks have been just absolute monsters. Look at the chart. Talking about restaurants just, or Starbucks? No, I'm talking about McDonald's, Yum, mm. and uh, Starbucks. All of them, it's hard to say anything negative about the way they've traded. The problem you have, and this is a trading show, so they're looking at 10 years out. What's that growth going to be look like? As a trader, you look at look at it and say, what are the next 90 days going to look like, right? And to me, that's where the risk is. So I wouldn't get too far over my skis in these names. I wouldn't be short them, but I wouldn't be adding on yeah. to them at this level. Well, with a Starbucks and a Dunkin' perspective, I would just say this. A lot of people don't watch coffee. as a form. I like looking at coffee prices are basically at or near they're, they're printing money. 30-year lows. Right. lows. Yeah. Have they cut the price of your triple Americano Never. with a double well, spritz that's or whatever not it is. how the world works. No. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, the interesting is they're also taking on, there's sort of a belief that these are becoming defensive almost, that McDonald's, Starbucks. But just keep in mind, I mean, Starbucks in the 07 peak, the 09 low, lost 82% of its value. And it was growing much faster than it's growing now. Actually, as a GART manager, would you buy this stock or is it too Starbucks? Expensive? Yeah. Way too expensive right now. Right, I so mean, it's not, a question, yeah. what price do you pay for the growth? And by all accounts, whether it's the 90-day trade or longer term, it's rich. They're, they're, getting, they're almost getting a, a, a growth technology multiple. I mean, when you think about what they're doing with deliveries, so it's giving them higher ticket price charges. Um, they're basically getting a better top line, getting loyalty. They're getting a place where you have, I think, an enormous change or a re-rating. I, it, it, this isn't the same company or the same dialogue I think you were having five years ago. I would add to the technology point. They have this deal with Brightloom Technology. They're going to start licensing that tech to the licensed stores. Yep. So mobile order and pay is not available right now at a lot of the licensed Starbucks locations, particularly outside of the U.S., so that's going to be a big growth area. Can, can I ask, a, just a, so is, is there a negative to the mobile? I understand everyone loves the mobile. I, I'm going to just say this. Sometimes you go into a Starbucks. You wait forever. And you're a third person in line. But 62 people jump in front of you because they had mobile orders and you just walk out. Is there an, I wonder if there's a downside to the mobile order. I don't think a lot of people walk out is the point. I think that they're willing I mean, like, to wait for it. I, you walk out, maybe. I, well, all of a sudden, people just kept going. The point, I, I guess I either have to order mobily or don't do anything. It's been a huge growth area for them. So yeah. I think that shows that even though, you know, you have to sometimes be patient, particularly the Times Square store can be very crowded. I did mobile order there today and I waited for it, so... I think the consumer may be willing to wait. Patience, Brian. Yeah. Be patient. Little patience. I'm getting coffee. There's no room for patience. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Kate. Let's stay on food because food. Shares of Beyond Meat got a big boost today. This after KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, guys, listen to this, announced it is going to begin testing Beyond Meat's plant-based fried chicken in an Atlanta restaurant tomorrow. Beyond Meat now more than 500% since May IPO still, 30% below the July highs. Does this get the nugget pop, BK? I think it does. I mean, that's the story with this. Now, you're going you're gonna to say, oh, the, the valuation's crazy. They're never going to be able to live up to all of this. But the story and what drives this stock today is wins. So are they winning new customers? And this proves that they are. And again, risk-reward, which is something I always look at is not that bad here. You're close to the recent lows. You have a lot of people that are negative on it. So I don't think it's that bad. I think you're going to get a bunch of these wins coming out. I mean, growth at a reasonable price. No way you own this stuff. No, no, no. I'd much rather be in a company like Tyson Foods who's going to have their own uh, plant-based alternative at a much, much more reasonable valuation. 
Beyond Meat? Uh, look, I'm not rushing into KFC or anywhere for a Beyond Meat burger. And, and I do think that you're getting to a place where if, if there's disruption in the meat space, this is something that I think other people will be doing generically, white label-wise. And if I'm a company with massive distribution, why am I buying it from someone else when, in fact, I don't think they're going out of the way for that burger into my store? It's all very peculiar. At the end of the day, I mean, it, we know it's being embraced. It's yet to be determined, well, this will really become long-term the thing that people believe it will be. You're like an owl with a graduation cap on. I mean, that was just so, it's very peculiar. Got a nice All visual. right, up next, shares of AMD, not KFC, on a terror this year. And the options market is betting that the red-hot chip stock is heading for an even bigger breakout. We're going to lay out the action. We are live at the NASDAQ market site. <coughs> Much more fast money right after this. The semiconductor ETF making some wild moves this month as trade tension with China intensified. Now, the chart could make you seasick, but the options market says the volatility could be a setup for the chips to rip higher. Mike Coe is in San Francisco with the options action on chips at AMD. Mike, what are you seeing? Yeah, so today in AMD, we saw call volumes outpace put volumes by more than four to one. Very heavy volumes, more than 220,000 call contracts trading overall. And the most active amongst those was the weekly 32 strike calls. Early in the day, about 75,000 of those had traded hands already at just under 30 cents. And by the end of the day, over 94,000 contracts had traded. And buyers of those calls are betting that it's going to be above that 32 strike price by at least the 30 cents that they were paying for those contracts. I would point out that August 13th, the stock was actually above $33, kind of to Carter's point earlier. Some of these stocks that have been whipsawed quite a lot, some of the activity we might be seeing, a little bit of a relief rally or just looking to play that volatility where stocks have been beaten up, hoping that they might bounce back back even to levels that we've seen just within the last couple of weeks. All right, Mike Co. Mike, thank you very much. Let's trade this guy's AMD. The options market saying one thing. Anybody around the, the desk agree, it's, disagree? It's interesting, actually, because these expire on Friday. And remember, September 1st, obviously, we've got, this, the, we've got the potential for tears. I think these names clearly are going to be the ones that would pop if for some reason they delay tariffs or there's some sort of resolution or at least maybe they had a third phone call or something like that. So this is actually not a bad trade. You don't think they had the first two? For all those folks looking for cyclicality in the market, they're looking at semis. If you look at the SMH, it, you know, Carter will tell you it's probably done nothing for the last two years um, except slowly make a couple new highs. I would just say simply here, um, we're getting nowhere higher without some type of resolution on the trade deal. Otherwise, it becomes a very, very volatile trade in the short run. All right, guys, thank you very much. Good stuff on AMD. For more options action, be sure to catch the full show Fridays, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, your final trades. It is time now for your final trade. Let's go around the horn. First up, Tim Seymour. Reaffirming the J&J trade earlier. And again, around 120, you have a very good stop. But there's a lot of bad news in this stock already. Some of the parts interesting. By J&J. BK? BK's highly skeptical that Lucy doesn't pull the, pull the football away again. You sell the SPY. Oh, selling the whole market. That's the whole market. BK's Lucy, negative. Not a fan Lucy. of BK. Mark. Salesforce, so another beaten race quarter. It's cheap versus its peers, and investor sentiment is changing, so that's going to lead to a re-rating. Wow, liking the CRM there, bullish on Salesforce. Carter Worth? So I'm going to go with Chubb. It's an offensive-defensive play. Insurance stocks in general have been good of late. They faltered, and yet Chubb has held up very well. Very low beta. It's a class uh, 
all by itself, uh, I think it'll get you done either way. Okay, buy Chubb, buy CRM, buy J&J, and BK says sell everything. Sell the house, sell the kids, sell the car, you're never coming home. Thanks for having me. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.